Chapter One of Pioneers of France in the New World, Part Two, Champlain and His Associates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pioneers of France in the New World by Francis Parkman, Part Two, Samuel Champlain and His Associates. Chapter One, Early French Adventure in North America, fourteen eighty eight to fifteen forty three, Part Two. Slowly gliding on their way by walls of verdure brightened in the autumnal sun, they saw forests festooned with grapevines and waters alive with wildfowl. They heard the song of the blackbird, the thrush, and as they fondly thought, the nightingale. The galleon grounded. They left her, and, advancing with the boats alone, on the 2nd of October, neared the goal of their hopes, the mysterious Hokalaga. Just below, where now are seen the quays and storehouses of Montreal, a thousand Indians thronged the shore, wild with delight, dancing, singing, crowding about the strangers, and showering into the boats their gifts of fish and maize. And as it grew dark, fires lighted up the night, while far and near the French could see the excited savages leaping and rejoicing by the blaze. At dawn of day, marshaled and accoutred, they marched for Hokelaga. An Indian path led them through the forest which covered the site of Montreal. The morning air was chill and sharp, the leaves were changing hue, and beneath the oaks the ground was thickly strewn with acorns. They soon met an Indian chief with a party of tribesmen, or, as the old narrative has it, one of the principal lords of the said city, attended with a numerous retinue. Greeting them after the concise courtesy of the forest, he led them to a fire kindled by the side of the path for their comfort and refreshment, seated them on the ground, and made them a long harangue, receiving in requital of his eloquence two hatchets, two knives, and a crucifix, the last of which he was invited to kiss. This done, they resumed their march, and presently came upon the open fields covered far and near with the ripened maize, its leaves rustling and its yellow grains gleaming between the parting husks. Before them, wrapped in forests painted by the early frosts, rose the ridgy back of the mountain of Montreal, and below, encompassed with its cornfields, lay the Indian town. Nothing was visible but its encircling palisades. They were of trunks of trees set in a triple row. The outer and inner ranges inclined till they met and crossed near the summit, while the upright row between them, aided by transverse braces, gave to the whole an abundant strength. Within were galleries for the defenders, rude ladders to mount them, and magazines of stones to throw down on the heads of assailants. It was a mode of fortification practiced by all the tribes speaking dialects of the Iroquois. The voyagers entered the narrow portal. Within they saw some fifty of those large oblong dwellings so familiar in after years to the eyes of the Jesuit apostles in Iroquois and Huron forests. They were about fifty yards in length and twelve or fifteen wide, framed of sapling poles closely covered with sheets of bark, and each containing several fires and several families. 
In the midst of the town was an open area or public square, a stone's throw in width. Here Cartier and his followers stopped, while the surrounding houses of Bark disgorged their inmates, swarms of children and young women and old, their infants in their arms. They crowded about the visitors, crying for delight, touching their beards, feeling their faces, and holding up the screeching infants to be touched in turn. The marvelous visitors, strange in hue, strange in attire, with mustached lip and bearded chin, with arquebus, halberd, helmet, and cuirass, seemed rather demigods than men. Due time having been allowed for this exuberance of feminine rapture, the warriors interposed, banished the women and children to a distance, and squatted on the ground around the French, row within row of swarthy forms and eager faces, as if, says Cartier, we were going to act a play. Then appeared a troop of women, each bringing a mat with which they carpeted the bare earth for the behoof of their guests. The latter being seated, the chief of the nation was borne before them on a deerskin by a number of his tribesmen, a bedridden old savage, paralyzed and helpless, squalid as the rest in his attire, and distinguished only by a red fillet inwrought with the dyed quills of the Canada porcupine encircling his lank black hair. They placed him on the ground at Cartier's feet and made signs of welcome for him while he pointed feebly to his powerless limbs and implored the healing touch from the hands of the French chief. Cartier complied and received in acknowledgment the red fillet of his grateful patient. Then from surrounding dwellings appeared a woeful throng, the sick, the lame, the blind, the maimed, the decrepit, brought or led forth and placed on the earth before the perplexed commander, as if, he says, a god had come down to cure them. His skill in medicine being far behind the emergency, he pronounced over his petitioners a portion of the Gospel of St. John, made the sign of the cross, and uttered a prayer, not for their bodies only, but for their miserable souls. Next he read the Passion of the Savior, to which, though comprehending not a word, his audience listened with grave attention. Then came a distribution of presents. The squaws and children were recalled, and with the warriors, placed in separate groups. Knives and hatchets were given to the men, and beads to the women, while pewter rings and images of the Agnus Dei were flung among the troop of children, whence ensued a vigorous scramble in the square of Hokelaga. Now the French trumpeters pressed their trumpets to their lips and blew a blast that filled the air with warlike din and the hearts of the hearers with amazement and delight. Bidding their hosts farewell, the visitors formed their ranks and defiled through the gate once more, despite the efforts of a crowd of women who, with clamorous hospitality, beset them with gifts of fish, beans, corn, and other viands of uninviting aspect, which the Frenchmen courteously declined. A troop of Indians followed and guided them to the top of the neighboring mountain. Cartier called it Mont Royal, Mont Real, and hence the name of the busy city which now holds the site of the vanished Hokelaga. Stadacone and Hokelaga, Quebec and Montreal, in the 16th century as in the 19th, were the centers of Canadian population. From the summit, that noble prospect met his eye, which at this day is the delight of tourists, 
but strangely changed since first of white men the breton voyager gazed upon it tower and dome and spire congregated roofs white sail and gliding steamer animate its vast expanse with varied life cartier saw a different scene east and west and south the mantling forest was over all and the broad blue ribbon of the great river glistened amid a realm of verdure beyond to the bounds of mexico stretched a leafy desert and the vast hive of industry the mighty battleground of later centuries lay sunk in savage torpor wrapped in illimitable woods the french re-embarked bade farewell to hokelaga retraced their lonely course down the st lawrence and reached stadacone in safety on the bank of the st charles their companions had built in their absence a fort of palisades and the ships hauled up the little stream lay moored before it here the self-exiled company were soon besieged by the rigors of the Canadian winter. The rocks, the shores, the pine trees, the solid floor of the frozen river, all alike were blanketed in snow beneath the keen cold rays of the dazzling sun. The drifts rose up the sides of their ships, masts, spars, and cordage were thick with glittering incrustations and sparkling rows of icicles, a frosty armor four inches thick, encased the bulwarks. Yet in the bitterest weather the neighboring Indians, hardy, says the journal, as so many beasts, came daily to the fort, wading half-naked waist-deep through the snow. At length their friendship began to abate, their visits grew less frequent, and during December had wholly ceased, when a calamity fell upon the French. A malignant scurvy broke out among them. Man after man went down before the hideous disease, till twenty-five were dead, and only three or four were left in health. The sound were too few to attend the sick, and the wretched sufferers lay in helpless despair, dreaming of the sun and the vines of France. The ground, hard as flint, defied their feeble efforts, and, unable to bury their dead, they hid them in snowdrifts. Cartier appealed to the saints, but they turned a deaf ear. Then he nailed against a tree an image of the Virgin, and on a Sunday summoned forth his woebegone followers, who, haggard, reeling, bloated with their maladies, moved in procession to the spot, and kneeling in the snow, sang litanies and psalms of David. That day died Philippe Rougemont of Amboise, aged twenty-two years the Holy Virgin deigned no other response. There was fear that the Indians, learning of their misery, might finish the work that scurvy had begun. None of them, therefore, were allowed to approach the fort, and when a party of savages lingered within hearing, Cartier forced his invalid garrison to beat with sticks and stones against the wall that their dangerous neighbors, deluded by the clatter, might think them engaged in hard labor. These objects of their fear proved, however, the instruments of their salvation. Cartier, walking one day near the river, met an Indian who not long before had been prostrate, like many of his fellows, with the scurvy, but who was now to all appearance in high health and spirits. What agency had wrought this marvelous recovery? According to the Indian, it was a certain evergreen, called by him a maida, 
a decoction of the leaves of which was sovereign against the disease. The experiment was tried. The sick men drank copiously of the healing draught, so copiously indeed that in six days they drank a tree as large as a French oak. Thus vigorously assailed, the distemper relaxed its hold, and health and hope began to revisit the hapless company. When this winter of misery had worn away, and the ships were thawed from their icy fetters, Cartier prepared to return. He had made notable discoveries, but these were as nothing to the tales of wonder that had reached his ear, of a land of golden rubies, of a nation white like the French, of men who lived without food, and of others to whom nature had granted but one leg. Should he stake his credit on these marvels? It were better that they who had recounted them to him should, with their own lips, recount them also to the king. And to this end he resolved that Donacana and his chiefs should go with him to court. He lured them therefore to the fort, and led them into an ambuscade of sailors, who, seizing the astonished guests, hurried them on board the ships. Having accomplished this treachery, the voyagers proceeded to plant the emblem of Christianity. The cross was raised, the fleur-de-lis planted near it, and, spreading their sails, they steered for home. It was the 16th of July, 1536, when Cartier again cast anchor under the walls of Saint-Malo. A rigorous climate, a savage people, a fatal disease, and a soil barren of gold were the allurements of New France. Nor were the times auspicious for a renewal of the enterprise. Charles V, flushed with his African triumphs, challenged the most Christian king to single combat. The war flamed forth with renewed fury, and ten years elapsed before a hollow truce varnished the hate of the royal rivals with a thin pretense of courtesy. Peace returned, but Francis I was sinking to his ignominious grave under the scourge of his favorite goddess, and Chabot, patron of the former voyages, was in disgrace. Meanwhile, the ominous adventure of New France had found a champion in the purses of Jean-François de la Roque, Sieur de Roberval, a nobleman of Picardy. Though a man of high account in his own province, his past honors paled before the splendor of the titles said to have been now conferred on him. Lord of Norumbega, Viceroy and Lieutenant General in Canada, Hokalaga, Sagene, Newfoundland, Belle-Isle, Carpunt, Labrador, the Great Bay, and Bacalaos. To this windy gift of ink and parchment was added a solid grant from the royal treasury, with which five vessels were procured and equipped, and to Cartier was given the post of captain-general. We have resolved, says Francis, to send him again to the lands of Canada and Hokelaga, which formed the extremity of Asia towards the west. His commission declares the objects of the enterprise to be discovery, settlement, and the conversion of the Indians, who are described as men without knowledge of God or use of reason. A pious design, held doubtless in full sincerity by the royal profligate, now in his decline, a fervent champion of the faith, and a strenuous tormentor of heretics. The machinery of conversion was of a character somewhat questionable, 
since Cartier and Roberval were empowered to ransack the prisons for thieves, robbers, and other malefactors to complete their crews and strengthen the colony. Whereas, says the king, we have undertaken this voyage for the honor of God our Creator, desiring with all our heart to do that which shall be agreeable to him, it is our will to perform a compassionate and meritorious work towards criminals and malefactors, to the end that they may acknowledge the Creator, return thanks to him, and mend their lives. Therefore we have resolved to cause to be delivered to our aforesaid lieutenant, Roberval, such and so many of the aforesaid criminals and malefactors detained in our prisons, as may seem to him useful and necessary to be carried to the aforesaid countries. Of the expected profits of the voyage, the adventurers were to have one-third and the king another, while the remainder was to be reserved towards defraying expenses. With respect to Donacana and his tribesmen, basely kidnapped at Staticon, their souls had been better cared for than their bodies. For having been duly baptized, they all died within a year or two, to the great detriment, as it proved, of the expedition. Meanwhile, from far beyond the Pyrenees, the most Catholic king, with alarmed and jealous eye, watched the preparations of his most Christian enemy. America, in his eyes, was one vast province of Spain to be vigilantly guarded against the intruding foreigner. To what end were men mustered and ships fitted out in the Breton seaports? Was it for colonization? And if so, where? Was it in southern Florida, or on the frozen shores of Baca Laos, of which Breton codfishers claimed the discovery? Or would the French build forts on the Bahamas, whence they could waylay the gold ships in the Bahama Channel? Or was the expedition destined against the Spanish settlements of the islands or the main? Reinforcements were dispatched in haste, and a spy was sent to France, who, passing from port to port, Quimper, Saint-Malo, Brest, Morlaix, came back freighted with exaggerated tales of preparation. The Council of the Indies was called. The French are bound for Bacalaos. Such was the substance of their report. Your Majesty will do well to send two caravels to watch their movements, and a force to take possession of the said country. And since there is no other money to pay for it, the gold from Peru, now at Panama, might be used to that end. The Cardinal of Seville thought lightly of the danger, and prophesied that the French would reap nothing from their enterprise but disappointment and loss. The King of Portugal, sole acknowledged partner with Spain in the ownership of the New World, was invited by the Spanish ambassador to take part in an expedition against the encroaching French. They can do no harm at Bacalaos, was the cold reply. And so, adds the indignant ambassador, this king would say, if they should come and take him here at Lisbon, such is the softness they show here on the one hand, while on the other they wish to give law to the whole world. The five ships, occasions of this turmoil and alarm, had laid at Saint-Malo waiting for cannon and munitions from Normandy and Champagne. They waited in vain, and as the king's orders were stringent against delay, it was resolved that Cartier should sail at once, leaving Roberval to follow with additional ships when the expected supplies arrived. On the 23rd of May, 1541, 
the Breton captain again spread his canvas for New France, and, passing in safety the tempestuous Atlantic, the fog banks of Newfoundland, the island rocks clouded with screaming sea-fowl, and the forests breathing piney odors from the shore, cast anchor again beneath the cliffs of Quebec. Canoes came out from shore filled with feathered savages, inquiring for the kidnapped chiefs. Donaconda, replied Cartier, is dead. But he added the politic falsehood that the others had married in France and lived in state like great lords. The Indians pretended to be satisfied, but it was soon apparent that they looked askance on the perfidious strangers. Cartier pursued his course, sailed three leagues and a half up the St. Lawrence, and anchored off the mouth of the river of Cap Rouge. It was late in August, and the leafy landscape sweltered in the sun. The Frenchmen landed, picked up quartz crystals on the shore, and thought them diamonds, climbed the steep promontory, drank at the spring near the top, looked abroad on the wooded slopes beyond the little river, waded through the tall grass of the meadow, found a quarry of slate, and gathered scales of a yellow mineral which glistened like gold, then returned to their boats, crossed to the south shore of the St. Lawrence, and, languid with the heat, rested in the shade of forests laced with an entanglement of grapevines. Now their task began, and while some cleared off the woods and sowed turnip seed, others cut a zigzag road up the height, and others built two forts, one at the summit and one on the shore below. The forts finished, the Vicomte de Beaupré took command, while Cartier went with two boats to explore the rapids above Hokelaga. When at length he returned, the autumn was far advanced, and with the gloom of a Canadian November came distrust, foreboding, and homesickness. Roberval had not appeared. The Indians kept jealously aloof, the motley colony was sullen as the dull, raw air around it. There was disgust and ire at Charlebourg-Royal, for so the place was called. Meanwhile, unexpected delays had detained the impatient Roberval. Nor was it until the 16th of April, 1542, that with three ships and two hundred colonists he set sail from Rochelle. When on the 8th of June he entered the harbor of St. John, he found seventeen fishing vessels lying there at anchor. Soon after, he descried three other sail rounding the entrance of the haven, and with anger and amazement recognized the ships of Jacques Cartier. That voyager had broken up his colony and abandoned New France. What motives had prompted a desertion little consonant with the resolute spirit of the man, it is impossible to say, whether sickness within or Indian enemies without, disgust with an enterprise whose unripened fruits had proved so hard and bitter, or discontent at finding himself reduced to a post of subordination in a country which he had discovered and where he had commanded. The viceroy ordered him to return, but Cartier escaped with his vessels under cover of night and made sail for France, carrying with him as trophies a few quartz diamonds from Cap Rouge and grains of sham gold from the neighboring slate ledges. Thus closed the third Canadian voyage of this notable explorer. His discoveries had gained for him a patent of nobility, 
and he owned the seigneurial mansion of Limoilou, a rude structure of stone still standing. Here and in the neighboring town of Saint-Malo, where he also had a house, he seems to have lived for many years. Roberval once more set sail, steering northward to the Straits of Belle-Isle and the dreaded Isles of Demons. And here an incident befell which the all-believing Teve records in manifest good faith, and which, stripped of the adornments of superstition and a love of the marvellous, has without doubt a nucleus of truth. I give the tale as I find it. The Viceroy's company was of a mixed complexion. There were nobles, officers, soldiers, sailors, adventurers, with women, too, and children. Of the women, some were of birth and station, and among them a damsel called Marguerite, a niece of Roberval himself. In the ship was a young gentleman who had embarked for love of her. His love was too well requited, and the stern viceroy, scandalized and enraged at a passion which scorned concealment and set shame at defiance, cast anchor by the haunted island, landed his indiscreet relative, gave her four arquebuses for defense, and with an old Norman nurse named Bastienne, who had pandered to the lovers, left her to her fate. Her gallant threw himself into the surf, and by desperate effort gained the shore, with two more guns and a supply of ammunition. The ship weighed anchor, receded, vanished, and they were left alone. Yet not so, for the demon lords of the island beset them day and night, raging around their hut with a confused and hungry clamoring, striving to force the frail barrier. The lovers had repented of their sin, though not abandoned it, and heaven was on their side. The saints vouchsafed their aid, and the offended virgin, relenting, held before them her protecting shield. In the form of beasts or other shapes abominably and unutterably hideous, the brood of hell, howling in baffled fury, tore at the branches of the sylvan dwelling. But a celestial hand was ever interposed, and there was a viewless barrier which they might not pass. Marguerite became pregnant. Here was a double prize, two souls in one, mother and child. The fiends grew frantic, but all in vain. She stood undaunted amid these horrors, but her lover, dismayed and heartbroken, sickened and died. Her child soon followed. Then the old Norman nurse found her unhallowed rest in that accursed soil, and Marguerite was left alone. Neither her reason nor her courage failed. When the demons assailed her, she shot at them with her gun. But they answered with hellish merriment, and thenceforth she placed her trust in heaven alone. There were foes around her of the upper no less than of the nether world. Of these the bears were the most redoubtable, yet being vulnerable to mortal weapons, she killed three of them, all, says the story, as white as an egg. It was two years and five months from her landing on the island, when, far out at sea, the crew of a small fishing craft saw a column of smoke curling upward from the haunted shore. Was it a device of the fiends to lure them to their ruin? They thought so, and kept aloof. But misgiving seized them. They warily drew near, 
and descried a female figure in wild attire waving signals from the strand. Thus at length was Marguerite rescued and restored to her native France, where a few years later the cosmographer Teve met her at Natron in Perigord and heard the tale of wonder from her own lips. Having left his offending niece to the devils and bears of the Isles of Demons, Roberval held his course up the St. Lawrence and dropped anchor before the heights of Cap Rouge. His company landed. There were bivouacs along the strand, a hubbub of pick and spade, axe, saw, and hammer, and soon in the wilderness uprose a goodly structure, half barrack, half castle, with two towers, two spacious halls, a kitchen, chambers, storerooms, workshops, cellars, garrets, a well, an oven, and two water-mills. Roberval named it France Roy, and it stood on that bold acclivity where Cartier had before entrenched himself, the St. Lawrence in front, and on the right the river of Cap Rouge. Here all the colony housed under the same roof, like one of the experimental communities of recent days officers, soldiers, nobles, artisans, laborers, and convicts, with the women and children in whom lay the future hope of New France. Experience and forecast had both been wanting. There were storehouses, but no stores, mills, but no grist, an ample oven, and a dearth of bread. It was only when two of the ships had sailed for France that they took account of their provision and discovered its lamentable shortcoming. Winter and famine followed. They bought fish from the Indians and dug roots and boiled them in whale oil. Disease broke out and before spring killed one-third of the colony. The rest would have quarreled, mutinied, and otherwise aggravated their inevitable woes but disorder was dangerous under the iron rule of the inexorable Roberval. Michel Gaillon was detected in a petty theft and hanged. Jean Denat, for a more venial offense, was kept in irons. The quarrels of men and the scolding of women were alike requited at the whipping post, by which means, quaintly says the narrative, they lived in peace. Teve, while calling himself the intimate friend of the viceroy, gives a darker coloring to his story. He says that, forced to unceasing labor and chafed by arbitrary rules, some of the soldiers fell under Roberval's displeasure, and six of them, formerly his favorites, were hanged in one day. Others were banished to an island and there kept in fetters, while for various light offenses several, both men and women, were shot. Even the Indians were moved to pity and wept at the sight of their woes. And here, midway, our guide deserts us. The ancient narrative is broken, and the latter part is lost, leaving us to divine as we may the future of the ill-starred colony. That it did not long survive is certain. The king, in great need of Roberval, sent Cartier to bring him home, and this voyage seems to have taken place in the summer of 1543. It is said that in after years the viceroy essayed to repossess himself of his transatlantic domain and lost his life in the attempt. Teve, on the other hand, with ample means of learning the truth, affirms that Roberval was slain at night 
near the Church of the Innocents in the heart of Paris. With him closes the prelude of the French-American drama. Tempestuous years and a reign of blood and fire were in store for France. The religious wars begot the hapless colony of Florida, but for more than half a century they left New France a desert. Order rose at length out of the sanguinary chaos. The zeal of discovery and the spirit of commercial enterprise once more awoke, while, closely following, more potent than they, moved the black-robed forces of the Roman Catholic reaction. End of chapter 1 Recording by Christine Dufour, Pioneer, California